Today we'll be reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right. I am uh, I'm glad to be here starting us off on this new series. We're going through the book of Jonah. Uh, filling in for Pastor Ray today. If you don't know, my name is Kellen Reed. Uh, we're glad you're here to start this series with us. Hopefully everybody did their homework and prepared by watching VeggieTales. <laughs> if not, it's okay. We'll catch you up. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, me being chosen to teach this week on rebellion and running from God is some sort of subtle message from Pastor Ray, but we'll, we'll assume that it's not and just move on. Uh, as we're studying God's word, something to keep in mind, we should be looking for things. Things like a promise to trust, a command to obey, truth to embrace, warning to heed, an example to follow or not and an encouragement to rest in. So let's start with some background information on this text so we can deepen our understanding. So first thing to cover is the question of is Jonah allegory or is it historical narrative? There are people that think that Jonah is allegory and here's the definition from Merriam-Webster. It is the expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions of truths or generalizations about human experience. Existence, sorry. And a more understandable one is a symbolic representation. So basically, anybody that thinks it's allegory thinks that this is a symbolic story. It didn't really happen. It's not part of history. But the book of Jonah must be read as historical narrative. It is history. And there's two reasons for that. First, Jonah is centered on a historically verifiable Old Testament prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C., Second, and more important, Jesus taught the story of Jonah as an actual account firmly rooted in history. We can see that in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. Jesus is responding to the scribes and Pharisees when they're asking for a sign. And in Matthew 12, 39 through 41, Jesus says, or it says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." So Jesus is confirming the historical accuracy of the story of Jonah. He's referencing it as fact with three days and three nights that he spent in the belly of the fish. And he's speaking of the men of Nineveh as real people that will rise up and judge the generation that he's talking to. Also, an interesting note there, take note of the three days and three nights and that connection, the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of a fish Christ is crucified three days and three nights, and then he's resurrected. So, interesting parallel there. Whole Bible is about Jesus. 
Now that we have established that, yes, it is historical narrative, this really happened, let's look at the historical and cultural context. So Jonah was the son of Amittai. You can find that in 2 Kings 14.25. He was from Gath-Hefer in the tribal territory of Zebulun. He was a prophet to the ten northern tribes of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel, just before the prophet Amos. So that's where we are in the timeline. This was a time of political stability, but a time of spiritual suffering. Jeroboam II actually expanded the borders of Israel and Judah to be as big as they were when King David and King Solomon were reigning. But the peace and wealth led to Israel becoming spiritually, ethically, and morally bankrupt. Despite this, Israel possessed a political distaste for Assyria and a sense of spiritual superiority as the recipient of God's covenantal blessing. And of course, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria at the time and is well known for its cruelty and wickedness and is a center of idol worship. So that's the backdrop. Now we know where we are. We can start working through the text. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sinners in need of grace and rebels at heart, just like Jonah. Please guide us through your word and instruct us in your wisdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you take a look at your sermon notes, the thesis statement for this text, chapter 1 of Jonah, is God commanded Jonah to call the Ninevites to repentance, and Jonah rebelled, attempting to run away from the presence of the Lord. Like Jonah, we all rebel against God and seek our own will above his. Unlike Jonah, and like the mariners or sailors, when God demonstrates his grace, mercy, and love and sovereignty, it should cause us to humble ourselves, repent, and turn to worship God. So the first question to answer, why do we rebel against God? And that's your first fill in the blank, which is we rebel and run away from God because we are sinful by nature after the fall of mankind. Sinful by nature. Let's read those first three verses again. They say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. When, uh, when I was a young boy, probably between five and eight years old, something like that. I don't remember exactly when this happened, but uh, I was extremely difficult to deal with and stubborn. If you would like to confirm that, just ask my parents. They will happily agree. And some of you might be saying, what's different now? <laughs> but uh, one particular day, I was especially ornery, and uh, I don't know what I did, but my mom said those words that no kid wants to hear. Just wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> no, thank you. So, of course, I did not wait for my punishment. That's, that's ridiculous. Why would I do that? Instead, I walked out through the back door, went out into the backyard. I climbed up the walnut tree that was right next to our house, and I got on the back porch and onto the roof. Because my thought process was, if I'm on the roof, I can't be punished. <laughs> right? And I'll just live off of walnuts until I'm old enough to move out. <laughs> and then I found out that my, uh, my mom called my dad and she was like, Kellen won't come down from the roof. He won't come down. What do I do? My dad's like, leave him up there. 
Uh, I did eventually come down, obviously, but uh, this was not a well-crafted plan that I had come up with. Uh, not the best plan there, but that's the point. When we're in rebellion, we lose our ability to think clearly. Our plans don't work out so well. So geographically speaking, Jonah is from Gath-Hefer. This is in the middle northern part of Israel. So we're going to have an invisible map here for you guys. So this is where Jonah's at. God commands him to preach in Nineveh, which is northeast of there. So he's supposed to go up this way. But where does he go? He goes to Joppa, which is this way, southwest. So he goes the complete opposite direction. He doesn't just stay there and say, nah, I'm not going to go. He goes the opposite direction, boards a boat going to Tarshish, which is commonly associated with Tartessus in southern Spain, which is all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. So he is doing his very best to get away from this. That being said, what is the thing that Jonah, myself, and everyone in this room have in common? We are all rebellious, we're all sinful, we all try and run from God. Every single one of us. So, go ahead and take this uh, moment to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm just like Jonah. Everybody in the first service said, you're just like Jonah, <laughs> which was not right. Well, it was right, but not what I told him to do. <laughs> so our sinfulness started in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel in the garden, and they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You might have heard this referred to as the doctrine of original sin. Uh, quick side note, we did a sermon series a couple of years ago, and it was on these essential doctrines of the Christian faith that follow the acronym doctrine. Great series. If you weren't here at the time, highly recommend you go back and look at it. Uh, if you want a refresher, go back and look at it. It's good stuff. But ever since the fall, we are born sinful. We are rebels by nature. King David wrote about this in Psalm 51. Verses 1 through 5 say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I have 1 John 1.7 on your notes, but scratch out the 7 and turn that into an 8, because that is the correct verse, uh, which says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the point is, we rebel because we are sinful by nature. The next point on your notes, we rebel and run away from God because so we can accomplish our will instead of his after God has called us to do something because of our pride. We want to accomplish our will. So I'll read verse 3 again. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is committed to his way. A prophet of God is resisting the will of God. 
I'll say that again. How strange is it that a prophet of God, a man who knows the Lord, who fears the Lord, is resisting his will? And clearly God is allowing him the freedom to do so in this situation. So he pays to board a ship going as far away from possible from where God wanted him to go. And he's trying to flee the presence of the Lord. Can he really flee the presence of the Lord? No. We just saw the answer in the video. <laughs> he's got really big legs. No. <laughs> he's, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present all the time. Verses uh, 7 and 8 of Psalm 139 say, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So why was he running then? He could have been thinking that he could escape God's voice if he got outside the borders of Israel. That might have been it. He could have been running as far away from possible from the manifested presence of God in the temple. That could be it. But he certainly ran to avoid doing what God asked him to do. Jonah would have known about the Assyrians and how evil they were. He could have thought, if I go there and I preach in Nineveh, they're going to kill me in the street. And then that's the end of Jonah. Or it could have been the trip, the difficulty and length of the journey. Either way, God's will is for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's will is for him to not go to Nineveh. And we haven't read this far yet in the chapter, but I'm going to give you a summary of the events in the first half. So basically, the Lord tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah rebels and runs away, boarding a ship to Tarshish. God sends a storm to stop him. The sailors on the boat cast lots to determine the cause of the storm, and they find Jonah out, and then they ask him what they should do with him. And after all this, Jonah tries to get his way still in verse 12. He says, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah would rather die than go do what God is telling him to do. He's saying, throw me into the sea. His pride and rebellion have driven him to the point of taking his own life rather than obey God. And if we take a, a second to kind of reflect on that, questions we can ask ourselves would be, are we trying to follow the example of Jonah in our lives in any way? Are we trying to accomplish our will rather than God's in some area? Has our pride blinded us? in some way. And what we can do about this is just pray to God and ask him. Pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. They say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We rebel to accomplish our will instead of God's out of pride. The next fill in the blank, next point on your notes is we rebel and run away from God to protect our idols because we have placed something higher than God. Protect our idols. In Ezekiel 14.3, God speaks of the elders in Israel and it says, These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. One American theologian wrote, Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. 
God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. And I'm sure that pretty much everybody in here knows the answer to this, but uh, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? You can go ahead and shout it out loud if you know it. Yeah, perfect. Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse 3, says, You shall have no other gods before me. Either God is our priority, or some other little g god idol is our priority. There is no third way. There is no in-between. It's either God or something else. The important thing is to recognize when and how this is happening in our lives. It's been said that one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is if fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. We center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult. But rather, this is the end, there is no hope. That's our reaction. And Jonah probably knew that preaching to the Ninevites would lead to trouble for Israel. The Israelites still feared the Assyrians at this point because there, even though there was a diminished military threat and Jonah's idols were political and religious superiority, as we see later in the book. And we aren't really all that different today, right, in America? We love our politics. One American pastor wrote, this political idolatry may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything falls apart. The peace and the prosperity of the people of Israel would be threatened by a powerful Assyria, Nineveh being the capital, and everything would fall apart. So they thought, probably. Jonah thought it would be better for God to send his wrath and destroy the great city rather than for the people to repent and receive grace. Jonah was not willing to allow any other nation to share in the honor of divine revelation of the one true God because of his idolatry. We run away from God to protect our idols. So that is, why do we rebel? Let's answer the question, what happens when we rebel? What things take place? And your next fill in the blank is, when we rebel against God, we face consequences. Now we'll start to work our way through the rest of the text here. So verses 4 through 6 say, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And we start to see multiple consequences here for the rebellion in the text. The first one is a great storm, a mighty tempest. It's like a Major League Baseball pitcher throwing smoke. 
God literally hurls the storm at the boat. It says hurls. And it's unnaturally bad. So bad that the seasoned sailors begin to reason this must be the wrath of a God. There's no other way this happens. Jonah faced this consequence while he was asleep and he brought it on the sailors of the boat he boarded. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I would say that this consequence, this storm, is an example of God opposing the proud prophet Jonah just a little bit. The second consequence faced by Jonah is he gets swallowed by a great fish at the end of the chapter. It says in verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The longer we rebel against God, the worse things get for us. Jonah had to deal with a storm, but he stubbornly refused to give in, so he ended up in the belly of a fish, which is much, much worse than a storm on a boat. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome regarding God's wrath on the unrighteous who rebel, suppress the truth, and don't acknowledge God. Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And verses 26 and 27, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for the ones that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That is a scary thought that there may be a point in which God tells a person, okay, go have your sin. But what we should do, reject our sin, turn to Christ, and rest in the truth of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? And then in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. So we face consequences when we rebel. The other thing that happens when we rebel is we hurt others. That's your next fill in the blank. When we rebel against God, we hurt others. There is almost always collateral damage for our sin. Verse 5 says, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. There's our third consequence. Now is the lost cargo or lost money for the sailors. Uh, it's an easy detail for us to kind of gloss over, skip over that because we're interested in seeing Jonah being eaten by the fish. But uh, that was the whole point of the voyage for them was to make money. So that was a big loss for those guys. One theologian stated, the mariners observed so much peculiar and uncommon either in the storm itself or in their own distress by it that they concluded it was a messenger of divine justice sent to arrest some one of those that were in the ship as having been guilty of some enormous crime, judging as the barbarous people. So they've gotten rid of their cargo. This storm is so bad, this has to be the wrath of a god because somebody evil is on the ship. So let's figure out who this guy is. And... Verses 7 through 10 show us what happens next. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? 
And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. In answering their questions, Jonah identifies himself to the men in ethnic terms. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And religious terms. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He declares who God is to the men and answering their questions as well. And he could have saved them the trouble of casting lots if he would have just confessed initially. But like all criminals, he doesn't confess until he's found out. So, he waits. Continuing on, verses 11 through 13. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. For, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They rowed hard to get back to dry land. They probably decided, if we have to part with this guy, let's put him back safely on dry land instead of throwing him over into the sea. They didn't want to kill Jonah. They had more concern for one man who brought this on them than Jonah had for tens of thousands of men, women, and children in Nineveh. But the sea grew more and more tempestuous, so they're out of options. When we pick up in verse 14. Therefore the Lord, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They might have been hesitating to throw him in because they thought it might have made God more angry if they did that. Uh, but after their hesitation, they decided this is the only course of action for us. They prayed to God, pleading their innocence over what they were about to do. The storm stops, and then the mariners are now confirmed in their new belief that Jonah's God is the only true God. Another example of sin affecting others is found with King David. You can read about this story for yourself in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But a summary is, David saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, bathing, summoned her, they slept together, she became pregnant. David tries to manipulate Uriah to cover up his sin, fails, and then sends him to the forefront of the hardest fighting of a battle so that he will die. He basically murders him. The prophet Nathan confronts David, then the child conceived by David and Bathsheba becomes sick and dies. There is a lot of fallout there. Other people suffer when we sin against God. One theologian wrote, Sin brings a storm, brings storms and tempests into the soul, into the family, into churches and nations. It is a disquieting, disturbing thing. Our sin affects other people. Even the secret sins that no one knows about affect other people because they change our heart which as a result affects our behavior towards others. So the point is we hurt others when we rebel against God. Next point on your notes, when we rebel against God, our relationship with God grows cold. Grows cold. We miss out on God's goodness, love, peace, and joy. 
King David wrote Psalm 51 after all of this happened that I just uh, summarized for you with Bathsheba. He recognizes the separation of God created by a sin in verse 11 of Psalm 51. It says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12 tells us the cause of his sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He lost the joy of his salvation, then he sinned. He didn't sin and then lose the joy of his salvation. And then you can see he also lost the sense of God's mercy and love. In verse 1 of Psalm 51, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And we can see the separation from God in Jonah as well. All the sailors are crying out to their gods except Jonah. He's asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. If Jonah was close to God, the storm would have caused him to cry out to God. He would have been praying and asking for God's help. But his relationship had grown cold. Our relationship with God grows cold when we rebel. Our God is uh, gracious and merciful, amen? We can see his grace and mercy and sovereignty all over this chapter. So the next point on your notes, God's grace and mercy are given according to his will. We'll start pulling out all these examples. So if we go back to verses 1 and 2 again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The word of the Lord here is like the statement in Genesis 18.20 about Sodom and Gomorrah. But in this situation, God is showing mercy to the wicked Ninevites in sending a prophet to warn them to repent. Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that actually is sent to the foreign nation that he is speaking against to deliver God's message. Essentially, he was the first missionary there. Now let's look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God is displaying his mercy to Jonah in sending the storm, too. He sends the storm to keep him from ever reaching Tarshish. What if God had allowed him to get there? Does he ever turn from his rebellion at that point? If he successfully gets over there? Does he ever come back to God? But God is also sending or showing mercy to the people of Nineveh by sending the storm because he keeps Jonah on track. He's pulling him back towards what he wants him to do. Then in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is after they tossed Jonah overboard and the, the storm stops. God is showing grace and mercy to the mariners or the sailors when he stops the storm. So he, he ceases it. And then also in allowing Jonah to try to rebel. If Jonah doesn't board the boat, do the sailors begin to fear the Lord? Maybe, maybe not. And then finally in verse 17, 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God shows mercy and grace to Jonah after he's thrown overboard by keeping him alive and not letting him sink to the bottom of the Mediterranean. He sends a fish to retrieve him, swallow him whole, and then eventually deliver him to dry land. So God's grace and mercy are given according to his will. And praise God for that. I'm glad we aren't the arbiters of that. <laughs> and Jonah wasn't either. <laughs> the next point on your notes, uh, God's salvation wasn't restricted to the Jews, but given to the Gentiles as well. It's for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Part of the reason that God sent Jonah to Nineveh may have been as a warning to the people of Israel because of their spiritual state at the time, but it was also certainly for the salvation of Nineveh. God sent Jonah for the shame and jealousy of Israel and as a rebuke to the Jews for failing to bring the Gentiles to the knowledge of the one true God. Ironically, the same city that Jonah uses to escape God's command, which is Joppa, he goes to board the ship there, is the same city that Peter had his vision in preparation for his visit to Cornelius, a Gentile, in Acts 10. During Peter's visit with Cornelius, he proclaimed the good news of God's salvation to the Gentiles in Acts 10, 34 and 35. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And the apostle Paul backs this up in Romans 3, 29. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. God's salvation is given to both Jews and Gentiles. God's power and sovereignty are all over the book of Jonah. There's actually a total of 10 miracles. If you dive in and you start counting, there's 10 total in the book. There's five in this first chapter. So, the miracles in Jonah, let's go through them. Chapter 1, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That's verse 4. The lot fell on Jonah when they were casting lots. That's verse 7. The sea ceased from its raging after the sailors tossed him in. That's verse 15. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's verse 17. And then Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's also verse 17. So we had five in the first chapter. And that leads to the next Point on your notes, God demonstrates his divine sovereignty over the weather and casting lots and over plants and animals like the great fish. So that last miracle, he was swallowed whole and alive. Uh, it's possible he died in the belly of the fish and then God brought him back from the dead again when the fish spit him back up. He also could have survived the whole time. The point is, since this is history, this is fact, let's not forget that we're talking about the God who spoke everything into existence. So whichever way this played out, it's not allegory. It actually happened. It's not far-fetched for our all-powerful God. I have a, a lot of cross-references on this point, so you can work through those this week if you'd like to on your own. Uh, the main idea is that God is all-powerful. He rules over the entire universe. He doesn't necessarily decree all things, but there's nothing outside of his control. No maverick molecules. The sailor's response to the unnatural power of the storm, the identification of the source of the storm provided by Jonah, he said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, and the grace and mercy given by God when they threw Jonah overboard and the storm stopped, all of those things, 
caused them to humble themselves in worship to the one true God. That is the response. When presented with who God is and all he's done for us, that's the response. That's what we should be doing when we recognize these things. Jonah was supposed to deliver a message to the people of Nineveh, but he inadvertently gave one to the sailors on the ship. They recognized who God was, who they were, and they worshiped. We also have a message today. We are all sinful and in need of salvation, and not just salvation from the storms in life. Our salvation is available through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If we acknowledge our sin, believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we confess him as Lord and Savior, we receive forgiveness from God and the Holy Spirit. It's the same powerful message that just flipped the world upside down 2,000 years ago. And as true as it was back then, it's just as true today for us. It is the good news. It is the best news. It is the gospel. I'd like to thank you all for coming today. If you have any questions about the sermon, I will be up here afterwards and any available elders will be available to pray with you if you need prayer. Uh, next week, we will be continuing through the book of Jonah, chapter 2, on repentance. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, you deserve all the glory and honor we can give you alone. Thank you for the gift of your grace and mercy that we can rest in your goodness, power, and sovereignty. Soften our rebellious hearts and draw us closer to you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and we all said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week.